0: Hello friends, I am so grateful that you're joining us today for Community Conversations. These conversations have been structured around recent events on the deaths of Hamad Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, not to mention many others that have already happened. We want to talk about theology and how does it inform our posture and our behavior as the body of Christ as we start to process these events. We want to do the things that honor God as a community called. I think you're gonna enjoy these conversations, so let's get started. Welcome everyone, and we are grateful to have such a distinguished panel for our discussion today. So as Christians, How do we frame our response to these current events? Who wants to get us started?
1: The Bible has so much to say about ethnic strife. Uh, I mean, the the heart of the New Testament is is crossing those barriers for the gospel going out to the Gentiles and welcoming God's people together in unity. It also is full of invitations to and, and commands for justice, I mean, you've got it in James, you've got in Revelation, certainly the teachings of Jesus uh, through the prophets, the Pentateuch. I mean, it's all over the place. And Jesus, our Lord himself, experienced injustice. Um, some some Black theologians have spoken of the cross as the lynching tree to, to bring out the analogy, Jesus himself faced injustice. And that should... Help us to put things in
2: perspective
1: about where we should stand.
2: Mm-hmm. Thanks, Dr. Cree. other thoughts? Dr. Reese. I to add to what, to what Craig was just saying and to affirm um, everything that he said and then to add to that and say, the central command that Jesus gives is to love God and love neighbor. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to love our neighbor, we have to stand up for justice for our neighbor. And we have to um, frame our response to racial injustice in such a way that um, everyone can see the love of God lived out both in our message and in our actions.
3: I, would just add. Yeah, I add to that. Uh, Go ahead. Oh, well, I would just jump in and say so we'll leave the present to last, if that's OK. <laughs> yeah. I think it's so important for us, and I hope we in our conversation do get a chance to get down to some of these very specific things that Craig and Ruth Ann have talked about. But the Bible is also uh, filled with times when God's people are committed to taking care of the vulnerable in their society. And so Ruth Ann rightly said the New Testament and Jesus' teachings talk about loving God and neighbor. Of course, that's based on Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy is filled with focus on humanitarian concerns, those who are Uh, The sojourners is sometimes called, they're really immigrants, and regardless of race, the Israelites are challenged to take care of them, protect them, to guard their lives. And so I would just say in this opening comment, when you ask about how to frame our response, one of the things I often hear about what's happening in our culture in North America today is that when people hear Black Lives Matter, sometimes other people say, well, all lives matter, or blue lives matter, or whatever, and the, th- the problem with that is that if you go to a doctor with an injury and you have a cut on your hand and you say to the doctor, I'm in a severe pain, I'm bleeding and my hand is hurt severely, I need help with this pain that I'm feeling in this hand. And the doctor should say, well, but your hand's not as important as your heart or your organs or your head. So, you know, it's not, as- but your concern about where the pain coming from what's causing the pain and what needs healing and i think that's what the black lives matter movement is really all about it's looking at our society and saying where's the pain coming from what's the source of that pain what's causing it and what can be done to to prevent and heal the wound that it represents
4: great thoughts and i i have very little to add to these very esteemed comments from my colleagues but i'll just i do think we should mention the the fact that the scripture uh is rooted originally in the creation account of the image of God. And the doctrine of image of God is crucial to this whole conversation because all people are created and are, are image bearers in the world, not just those who are redeemed, but all people are image bearers in the world. And I also think it's important to remember that, you know, in this particular act with the, the uh, horrible murder of George Floyd, you actually have bringing together in that one event both a personal sin and systemic evil both come together because you have the act of a personal, you know, a person who did something on that particular day and it's been recognized as a, as a sin or crime, a second degree murder, et cetera. But you also have the larger question of what are the the larger forces which brought, you know, which allows that to happen and gives a permission slip to happen in the police force from the culture. And so in some ways it, the, the culture without being able to name it is actually discussing both the concept of, of personal sin discussing what should be charged you know what how should the police be charged but also with a larger systemic question and of course the Bible is full of systemic evil I mean going back to Egyptian slavery the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem to the Roman Empire I and mean, all the way through as Craig pointed out so beautifully uh, the whole revelation of the Bible actually comes up out of and in the midst of systemic evil and speaks to both of those realities and, and we can't um we can't solve this unless we recognize both of those dynamics.
0: You know, it's interesting for me that we are so, we can easily get focused on current events, but we see these things coming up in the first century church even, of where people are not treated the same. So let's talk a little bit about what was that context, what was that setting in the early church And how did the early church deal with racism and injustice? This is all over the place
1: in the New Testament. Um, And and in terms of ethnic division and cultural division, um, I I gave you a link for more because I can't fit it all into a few sentences. But uh, I mean, the book of Acts is all about that. The spirit of God, starting with chapter one and verse eight, driving people across cultural barriers. Uh, Jewish people who had been wronged by Gentiles, now going out to, to reach Gentiles, reach Samaritans, and welcome, welcoming them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Not always voluntarily. I mean, Peter had to be pushed beyond his comfort zone uh, in Acts chapter 10. Uh, Philip did it more readily, uh, but we have that all through the book of Acts. Uh, and then we have conflicts between the, you know, the more conservative well, culturally conservative elements in the church in Acts 21 uh, in Jerusalem, and, and Paul, who's who's in touch with reaching Gentiles. And so, um, you know, the, the one is great for reaching their group, the other's reaching his group and and how they how they work things together. Uh, Matthew's gospel addressing Jewish believers uh, from start to finish with the, the four Gentile women in the genealogy to the Magi to um, the Gentile centurion uh, whose servant is healed, to um, the, the, the execution squad confessing Jesus as the Messiah, I mean all the way through, or uh, Romans, I mean you know the the conflict between uh, Jewish and Gentile cultures there in the church in Rome and how Paul surmounts that in chapter after chapter building to uh, the climax of the unity in, in chapter 15 and in chapter 14 dealing with the cultural differences um, in terms of their food customs and holy days and you know the segregated lunch counter in Galatians uh, 2 or you know people from every people and nation and language and revelation is just all over the place.
2: And I think to follow up on that it it is it is really and truly everywhere in the New Testament. But I think one of the things we do have to be aware of is that our understanding of race in the 21st century and the understanding of race in the first century were a bit different from each other. So in, in the 21st century, we're very focused on skin color and what skin color tells us about the group to which a person belongs. But in um, the first century, the focus was on ethnicity and particularly your connection to a particular family or a particular tribe or clan. And so the way in which those divisions are are portrayed um, resonates with our own experience in the 21st century, but it's also a little bit different from it. So let me
0: follow up on that just a little bit. So how does that speak then to our actions as the body of Christ? as a church. So, as you describe it in first century, you know, we can understand that it had a different look. But now as we get to current events in this century, what is the scripture speaking to us in a way that we respond in our context? So,
2: I think one of the things that we see in the New Testament is there's a lot of division over right and and that we can we can go by analogy to say there's also a lot of division in our current context. And so those divisions might be racial, but they also might be socioeconomic or they might be political, right? There's a lot of different types of division in our current 21st century context. And the biblical text speaks to how the church is to deal with division. And I mean, I think one of the most beautiful examples of this takes place in Acts 6, where you have two groups of people, they're actually both Jewish, but they have different mother tongues. One are Greek-speaking Jews, and one are Aramaic or Hebrew-speaking Jews. And one group is being neglected by the other group. And what happens is the apostles who are in charge, they appoint people from the neglected group to be in charge. And so there's a way in which The people, to go back to Bill's analogy of the hand that's experiencing pain, the people who are experiencing pain are heard. They are, um, their concerns are validated. And then a solution that involves their own leadership and their own capacities is brought forward and affirmed by the church as the way to make progress. And I mean, that is a blueprint for a way that we can make progress in our own efforts at reconciliation across divisions, whether those are political or socioeconomic or racial.
3: That's a beautiful uh, picture, Ruth and I appreciate that vision of Act 6. I think I want to come along behind what you've said to answer Donna's question maybe a little more directly in this sense. The idea of family distinction, if you would have put it that way, or I think you said ethnicity rather than race, that finds its source in the Old Testament. Because the the Israelites don't really have a word for race or racism, but but they're all about, as you know from Genesis 10, the family of nations. And when, through Abram, Israel is given their mission to be a blessing for all nations of the earth, the, the couple of words that are used there are family groups or tribal groups. They're very conscious of those Differences now, Donna. To answer your question, in my opinion, it is sin, and we have to come to this sometime. In this, it's like Craig said. There's too much to talk about here. Uh, The nature of sin, as is defined in Genesis three to eleven, takes those differences and drives them deeper and makes them more, uh, more difficult, more more insurmountable. It seems, and that's what happens when I think in our time. To get to Donna's question, I think what had been understood as distinctions and differences between ethnicities in the ancient world because of human sin accumulating over the centuries has been driven deeper into our, our consciousness as the differences between races. So that race, racism really is a, a sense of culmination of all of these sins uh, as they're coming together. Uh, so, I mean, it's a remarkable insight that the Israelites talked about the image of God in the very first chapter of the Bible, as Tim mentioned. And that image of God is something that, even though they saw differences in humanity, they saw that as something, that that likeness of God, they saw that as something in all humanity. So it's an incredible insight that they started the Bible with that. Mm -hmm. And the reason that was lost is because of sin. So it escalates to the Tower of Babel, where you have all the divisions, accumulating even more, and that's, that process is only continued. So, uh, I, I don't know, I think that helps to answer that question.
4: I mean, I'd like to point out, and there's are great points, and of course the image of God language disappears for Genesis 9, and, there, and in some ways uh, it's, it's the New Testament that brings that back in the image of Christ, uh, who images God once again for us. I wanted to actually bring, ask, answer John's question a bit more directly to you know, what should the church do? That kind of, what is the next step? I really think in some ways, maybe the question itself has to be analyzed, but I think, especially evangelicals, our tendency is to quickly go to what do we do, and I think in some ways that might be the, that might be the third thing we should do, is, is to ask that question. I think there ought to be a space theologically for us to lament. I think we ought to have a space for lamenting as a community. Uh, the Psalms are filled with laments. Uh, I've used those a bit in the last couple of weeks to help the boys to... Kind of crying over a broken world is important for us as the people of God. And, and recognizing our own role in this. I mean, First Peter four seventeen says that judgment begins in the household of God. Uh, what, in what ways the church led or not led? In what ways we've been silent and complicit and not? This requires lamenting, I think. We have to do a lot of listening. It's important to listen. That's part of what this whole Zoom thing about, is to help us to listen to each other. And Donna has several other remarkable ones planned with some African-American leaders around the country. Uh, and I think at that point, we can maybe talk about what do we do, how do we lead, and we have to do that. But I think at first, it's important for us to take time to um, to give space for listening and lament and understanding. Because I think even the, the importance of affirming the work of police officers generally, I, I totally understand that. But my point to people on that point You have, you can't do that now. This is the time to listen to the tragedy of this, that, that, that problem. Space for that. You can't go into healing because in 1963, if you remember what happened when the four girls were, were the four African girls were blown up in the church on 16th street in Washington, DC, that was the turning point for the civil rights act. And, then, and I talked about the 1964 Civil Rights Act, not the 68 one, the 64 one. And they don't believe that unless those, four, those little girls that died that night in that KKK bombing, in some ways, they forced the nation to see the, 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 just the, the sheer sinfulness of it. Because these are four little girls blown up in their own, own church one night. Um, and I think in some ways, it, it could be that this death could spark something of some deeper reflection that could actually make some difference. And the church has a huge role to play in that.
0: So I think all of these are such wonderful reflections. Dr. Reese, I love the blueprint. Uh, Dr. Arnold, I love the fact that sin has been embedded in our systems. It's systematic. And the process that, it's almost like a grieving process, Dr. Tennant, that we go through, we lament. Before we are getting to solutions, we're listening, we're having conversations. I mean Dr. Keener's given us great examples all through the New Testament. And what I find interesting about the blueprint is it speaks, it speaks power. So as I listen to uh, Dr. Reese as you describe what's happening in the book of Acts there, Um, I didn't realize before that this power was turned over to the people that were being marginalized. And I don't think, at least in my lifetime, I've ever seen that turn uh, in terms of how we as Christians and how we as a nation utilize power to bring equity to all people, brown people, Yellow, all people, white people. Um, And so it tends to give us an interesting thought around, so how does power um, in the church, in our government, in all of our systems play into how we're viewing these events? In terms of
1: what Jesus models for us, the greatest is the one who serves in Mark chapter 10. He gives himself as an example of that. And so that should be something i mean it's something he calls us to live out washing one another's feet and so on so that challenges the world's power systems the the cross where where jesus didn't come as as expected to overthrow the roman empire but he came and was crushed by the roman empire and yet that is what saves us so the foolishness of the cross the weakness of the cross God's power made perfect in weakness, God starts with the seed of what looks like small and powerless in people's eyes. And from that, I mean, his, his, his mighty kingdom grows from that from that small seed. So uh, it, it challenges the world's ideas of, of where the real power lies, because the real power God is nearest the, the
0: lowly and the broken, but far from the proud. Oh, yeah. Well, one of the questions that also comes to mind for me is as you through your theological perspective, how has it um, informed you personally? Um, how did you personally come to concern about Issues of race and racial reconciliation. Share uh, with us a little bit about how you've been impacted by that personal.
4: Well, I mean, I'll lead on that one, Donna. I, I, uh, like all of us, I've been on a journey my whole life, like we all have, in various ways. And um, I grew up in the South. Um, but I grew up in a, in a Jewish neighborhood in Atlanta, where I, we, we were the only Gentile family in the whole neighborhood, because my dad... Uh, build his house across the street from an orthodox synagogue. And so I grew up uh, in a context where I was the only Jewish, only Gentile person in my school and, uh, you know, ha- took a Jewish girl to the prom, et cetera, because that was my context. And so I think in some ways it helped me to see what it was like to be a person that was always referred to in the community. I was always referred to as the goyim and always referred to as the, the person that was other than everyone around me, and I think it helped me. Then I went on the mission field, and again, I was in the context of India where I was a minority, and so I think in some ways that helped me as a person in my own journey to understand what it's like to be in a situation where people make references that refer to a uh, you know the, the majority culture and you're not part of that, or people make reference to things that you don't understand, or, or things that they're said that they're actually hurtful or whatever, and so In some ways, um, it's a long journey, but those are some things in my formational part of my life which were helpful for me in my own, growing up in a pretty unusual situation, even though I was from state of Georgia, I grew up as a a minority in my community. My
1: my best friend in high school was African-American and a lot of my other friends, I mean, the, the school was mixed, but when I, I think the real transition point for me was when I was at the deepest point of brokenness in my life, it was African-American friends. They knew how to deal with pain in a way that, that the white evangelical uh, churches have been part of didn't know. And they, they nurtured me back to wholeness. Uh, I was ultimately ordained in an African-American church and I saw how they held together the, the, the gospel of salvation, personal salvation on the one hand and social justice on the other because it had never been an option for them <laughs> to let go of, of one or the other the way it had often been for, for a number of the white churches. And I saw how much the different kinds of the church had to, had to offer to each other. But my greatest need was what the African-American church offered to me. And it became really painful for me in a lot of white evangelical circles where they, there wasn't sensitivity to it, because my African American friends would just talk among one another in front of me about the different incidents of racism that they had faced that day. And I was like, I, didn't, I hadn't seen this before, but of course it wasn't happening to me. That's why I didn't see it. But as I began, I think the most important thing, especially for members of the dominant culture, where we have blinders, so to speak, we can function without seeing, is to listen and to learn um, and, and it's not, it's, uh, as some of you pointed out, it's not just a, a black and white problem, although in the US that's the presenting problem most, most, most often uh, that, that we see uh, because of the history of, of slavery and of course, Native Americans, the genocide there um, today with immigrants, there's so much that goes on. But, um, but my wife is from Congo in Central Africa And she was a refugee for 18 months due to an ethnic war there. So it's part of this larger picture. Sin often is expressed as selfishness. You take it to a corporate level, it becomes my group versus your group. And as Christians, we need, and especially as members of the dominant culture, it's incumbent on us to serve, to listen, and to, to let others voices be heard and to stand with them.
3: Yeah, I'll share uh, as briefly as I can uh, an account. Like Tim said, my journey has been one that's uh, happened over a lifetime of experiences, and there are many of those I could share, but there's one particular moment early in my teaching ministry, right out of graduate school, one of my first teaching assignments. I was teaching for another seminary, whose name I will not mention here, uh, at an extension campus in a downtown large city And I was teaching the Old Testament Prophets, and there were, I think, 40 students in that class, and almost all of them were African-Americans. And so I felt very much at home, and it was going great. The class was going very well. And I came to the theme in the Prophets, especially Hosea and Amos, about social justice, and all of a sudden, there was a resonating with my students that I hadn't experienced in all of the other teaching I was doing. And just as, I'll have to make this very brief, but I made a very good friend in that class who owned a small strip mall in that city. And he asked me to come early one day and he took me to his place of business. And he met me in the parking lot and just wanted to walk around with me in the in this all these various businesses and introduced me to a bunch of the, the business owners and so forth and I realized maybe for the first time the feeling of being a true minority and for me there was a great freedom because I could get back in my car and drive back into what Craig called the dominant culture in just a matter of minutes but I think he did that intentionally because it was part of my education he was teaching me you know uh, he wanted me to he wanted me to be he wanted to be seen he wanted me to be seen with him walking around and meeting everybody um, but I realized, okay, this is interesting. Now I'm in I'm in his world, and for most of his experience, he has to be he's forced to be in my world, and so it made me more sensitive to the the worlds that we build up around ourselves and how needed it is. As Craig was saying, to listen to uh, to the minority cultures. Uh, anyway, that's what I would share. I think. And so, what? Go ahead, Doctor
2: Reese. Go ahead and share uh- what. I just wanted to say that I grew up in Mm. Southern California in the desert and about 10 miles north of the Mexican border. And the town that I lived in was 75% Hispanic and about 20% white. But one of the interesting things was that basically most of the higher level work and the ownership of a lot of things in that area was held by white people. And so even though I grew up in a minority context, was really um, a disproportionately the power was held by the non um, the non majority people, but you know when you're growing up you often just accept the world as this is the way it is and don't really think about it, and so one of the things I have to say is that I have been blessed to have friends who have asked me questions, and when people ask you questions all of a sudden you're oh I really need to think about that oh I'm changing my perspective on that because people are confronting me with particular kinds of questions. I also want to say publicly that uh, my friendship with Dr. Rick Gray has was really super helpful to me so I came to Asbury um, and had an office very close to his and we talked a lot about um, his experiences of race and relationships between majority-minority groups of people was so instructive to me. And then finally, one more recent experiences is that I was co-leading a workshop for professors in theological education, and we met as a workshop for the very first time with people we had never met before, four days after the death of Trayvon Martin. Mm. and half of the people in that room, it was a small workshop of 20 people, about half the people in that room were African-Americans. They all had sons who were not teenagers yet. And they were all afraid. And for the first time I met a cohort of people who started to share their experience of what it is to, to live with a kind of fear for your children. And that, the relationships that I made there in that workshop became so formative for me in terms of, of developing a deeper empathy for um, the African-American families and people that I know. And so I'm, su- I'm super grateful for the people who have been willing to step into my journey and share their own experience, raise questions, push back, I'm really grateful for that.
0: So this is what I hear all of you all sharing is that our theological perspective, how we think about God, how we see God, starts to inform our own actions around how do we respond to the way we see and frame God. And it's interesting to me today that we're thinking through, and it's so helpful, that as we bring different perspectives to the table, it not only informs how we see God, but how we read the scripture and how that starts to shape and form our actions. So I wanna talk about that, but unfortunately we're out of time. And so we're gonna come back and do a part two where we can think about how does our theology start to shape how we read scripture in the narrative of scripture, and how that starts to inform our response to events. So thank you so much. Hey, if you've enjoyed this time today, if it uh, has really started to engage you, please join us again as we come back for part two on Theology and Race on Friday, uh, June the 12th at 11 a.m., and I hope to see you there. God bless you.